Thanks for tuning in today. I'll be chatting with Dr. Sarah Barry about an exciting new field called personalized nutrition or precision nutrition. At the heart of this field is the intriguing observation that two people can respond very differently to the same food. In our chat, Dr. Barry sheds light on the many factors that shape our response to food, from what we eat, to when we eat, to which bugs are living inside us. Dr. Sarah Berry is an associate professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at King's College London. Her research focuses on precision nutrition, postprandial metabolism, and the structure of food. She is also the lead nutritional scientist at Zoe, a personalized nutrition company. Zoe runs the world's largest nutrition science study called PREDICT to understand the complex relationship between food and health. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Barry. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So why don't we get started with a little bit about you. Can you tell me about your scientific background and your training, how you ended up in the precision nutrition field? Yeah, so I'm a nutritional scientist. I originally studied physiology as an undergraduate and became fascinated by how modifiable factors such as diet can influence how our body functions. So I went on to study at a higher level nutritional science and have spent most of my career looking at how diet can modulate our cardiometabolic risk, so can modulate factors such as our insulin sensitivity, adiposity, so, so our weight and our blood lipids, so factors like our cholesterol. And whilst I was studying this, I became aware of just how variable people's responses were to exactly the same food. And it was around this time that a startup tech company called Zoe were launching and planning this big program of research called the PREDICT program of research, which is the world's largest personalized nutrition program. And so it was a really exciting time for me in terms of my career, this whole realization of the importance of personalized nutrition and also the evolution of this great new program by Zoe, the PREDICT program. Well, I'm excited to dig into that in more detail. So I noticed, first of all, that you use the term personalized nutrition, but I've also seen, I think even on the Zoe website, they say precision nutrition. So is there a difference between the two and what's the definition? So there's no formal definition of personalized and precision nutrition, and they're often used interchangeably. And I think really simply, it's best that we think of both of them as very targeted nutritional advice based on an individual's characteristics. So based on what we call their phenotype, whether it's their genetics, whether it's their microbiome or their body composition, their sex, their age. And it's targeted nutritional advice based on these characteristics, which we know will be of benefit to that specific individual. Okay, that makes sense. I know that you've done a lot of work on postprandial response. So maybe let's just lay out a definition there before we spend more time on that. Yeah, so postprandial literally means post-eating. So prandial is the Latin for a meal or food and eating. So it means what is happening in that immediate post-consumption of a food phase. So we're typically talking about the six to eight hours after consuming a meal. So postprandial response, now why is that relevant health-wise? So I think when a lot of people think about how does my diet affect my health, they tend to think longer term, right? So how do we know that this immediate response is important? Yeah, so 
Traditionally, we focused on long-term factors. So traditionally, you will be asked to go to your doctor fasted so that they can measure your blood lipids or your glucose or any other measures in a fasted state. But what we actually know is that we spend most of our time in this postprandial phase. So what happens is, is when we consume a meal that contains mixed nutrients, as most of our meals do, so by mixed nutrients, I mean fats, carbohydrates, protein, fiber, for example, We know that you have very short-term changes in circulating metabolites because of the meal that you're consuming. So, for example, what happens is is the carbohydrate that's in the meal is metabolized to glucose that circulates in your body. It reaches a peak at around 30 minutes and returns to baseline around one to two hours after consumption of the meal. Likewise, the fat in the meal circulates in your body as something called triglycerides. And these reach a peak around four hours after consuming a fat-containing meal and return to baseline around eight hours. Now, imagine how you typically consume your meals. So in most Western societies, we consume two to three main meals a day and two to three snacks a day. So this means that if we're in this postprandial state on average for eight hours after consuming a meal, you can see that actually we spend very little time in this fasted state. And we're really starting to understand in the world of nutritional research and health research, the importance of looking at this postprandial phase. And that's because these circulating metabolites that I've mentioned, such as the glucose and the triglycerides from the meal in your blood, actually elicit this kind of cascade of downstream effects, which can be unfavorable if unchecked, repeated, and too high. So for example, it can initiate inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in clotting factors in your blood. And so we now know that actually it's these acute changes following consumption of a meal that underpin many of the chronic, meaning the long-term effects that diet has on our health. And Another way I often think about it as well, it kind of gives us a sort of peek into the future. So you and I could consume the same meals at the moment, and we could have exactly the same fasting glucose, just as an example, or fasting HbA1c, which is a measure of long-term glucose control and glucose levels. But you might have a very low glucose response following the same meal that I consume and I might have a very high glucose response. Now, if I was to go to the doctor and you were to go to the doctor and we were to measure your fasting levels, we would be the same. But actually, postprandially, you would see that we'd have very different levels. So it allows us to see metabolic differences long before they play out in the fasting state, giving us that peak into the future. And that's why I think also it's so important for precision nutrition or personalized nutrition, because it allows us to also disentangle those that have good metabolic control or respond in a favorable way to a food versus someone that responds in a less favorable way to the same food. Oh, that's a great segue into how do we define success? So if you're trying to optimize somebody's diet, what does a favorable glucose response look like? And what does a favorable triglyceride response look like? So I think the first thing really to say is that there's lots of different responses we want to look at. It isn't just favorable glucose or favorable fat responses. We need to think of the big picture and postprandial responses are one piece of the puzzle. They're a really important piece of the puzzle, but we also have many other pieces such as genetics, such as the microbiome. Now they interplay together and they're very integrated in how they all fit together in this puzzle. So that's just important to note and we can always circle back to that. But to answer specifically around a good glucose response or a bad glucose response, 
it's important to mention that it is normal physiological response to have in response to a carbohydrate meal, a change in circulating blood glucose. You're not going to flatline. We don't want you to flatline. What we want is to prevent repeated, very high excursions, so very big peaks and big dips in glucose throughout the day. And this is because we know that if you have very high peaks, so you have a very large increase in glucose immediately after the meal, it sets off this cascade of events that I mentioned. It sets off inflammation, oxidative stress. And we know that it increases your risk of type 2 diabetes. It may predispose you to be more obese. And it also increases your risk of cardiometabolic and cardiovascular disease. Interestingly, we also know from our Zoe Predict studies that people that have large dips in glucose, and this is often occurs because you've had an unfavorable peak in your glucose, we do know that people that are what we call dippers, glucose dippers, we do know that they feel hungry more quickly. We do know that they consume more calories at the next meal, but also over the whole next 24 hours. And we actually see a huge difference between big dippers and little dippers in terms of their energy intake over a 24-hour period, which is actually independent from the peak as well. And so it depends on what mechanism you're looking at. But generally, then based on the research we've done, we want to minimize those peaks. We want to minimize those dips and have an increase, but have it more sustain slow increase and slow return to baseline. In terms of blood fat, so our blood triglyceride levels after the fat-containing meal, again, we want to minimize these huge excursions, but we also don't want the fat to stick around for a long time. So it's a little bit different to what we want to do with the glucose response because the more that the fat's sticking around in the body, the more that you get modifications of the types of fat particles that circulate in the body. And these are remodeled to become what we call atherogenic. And that means they become particles that promote what we call atherosclerosis, which is this furring of the arteries, which is this underlying pathology that you see in the development of cardiovascular disease. So causing the thinning of the arteries and eventually the blocking of the arteries. We also see more oxidative stress when the fat is sticking around longer. We see also generation of lots of clotting factors as well. So What are some of the factors that influence how two people might respond differently to the same amount of sugar and fat? Yeah, so we see huge differences in how people respond. So from predict studies, we've seen there's about a 10 to 20 fold difference in how different people respond to exactly the same food. So again, you and I might consume exactly the same food, but I might have a 20 fold higher glycemic peak or glycemic dip and a 20 fold higher blood fat peak or or duration, even though it's exactly the same food. And so with the Zoe Predict program of research, we were able to collect data across a whole range of different exposures, as we call them, a whole range of different factors that determine how we respond to food. And we looked at the size of the variability, as I've just mentioned, and then we did a deep dive into what are the different factors that shape how you respond versus how I respond. And I think to put it really simply, what we found was that who you are, what you eat, and how you eat are the three key kind of umbrellas under which we can then take a deep dive into look at how each of those affect our responses. So we know what you eat is important, and that includes not just the nutrients, but the types of food and the quality of food, how processed the food is, the food matrix or the structure in which the food is in, for example. We know that how you eat is important. 
I just wanted to pause back on the nutrients because one thing that I've always found intriguing is the difference between, you know, the same amount grams of sugar in an apple versus apple juice. So I think that's a good example of the food matrix. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, the food matrix is something that I think is so understudied and underexplored. And I think personally is potentially more important than the nutrient composition of the food. And I think it's so relevant to us how we eat today because the food matrix is modulated by processing. And this is why we know that ultra-processed food is so bad for us, not necessarily just because of the nutrients, but because the food matrix is destroyed. So the food matrix refers to the structure of the food and also the way that the nutrients within the food interact. So if we take your example of an apple versus apple juice or pureed apple, what happens is, is you're breaking down the structure that the food is originally in. So if I was to look at pureed apple, where basically you stick it in a blender and I was to consume that, and then another day I was to consume the whole apple, you actually would get a very different glycemic response. So you'd get a very different pattern of blood glucose circulating in that one to two hours after. And this is because you're destroying the structure of the food. On the back of pack labeling, it would be identical, but actually how you process it is different. So the fiber would be the same, the carbohydrate would be the same, but you don't have the cell wall integrity, which is what the fiber essentially is, maintaining the function of the food. And we see this in our own studies that I've been running over the last few years where, for example, we take something like oats. If you take whole rolled oats, so big oats, and we feed it to our participants and then we get them to come back another week and we finally grind the oats. So again, the backer pack labeling would be exactly the same. We see really big differences in the blood sugar response, in hunger, so how hungry they feel, how full they feel. And the same applies to fat-rich foods. And we've done a lot of work in our lab looking at nuts. So we've done work where we've given people almonds to consume. And then we've actually really finely ground those almonds. And so we're feeding them nutritionally identical food on different days. But one, the food matrix is intact with the whole almonds. The other, the food matrix, the structure is destroyed by grinding. And what happens is, is firstly, we know about 30% of the fat is actually excreted from the whole almonds because the cell walls are intact. They're not readily digestible and it's coming out in your stools. Now, that's great because it's great fodder and food for our microbiome, so they're happy. But also we know there's also a lot slower rate of digestion. So you have a really favorable lipemic response, so blood fat response following the whole almonds versus the ground almonds. And this is the problem that backer pack labeling wouldn't tell us that. It would tell us that these are nutritionally identical foods, whether it's the rolled or finely ground oats or the whole almonds or finely ground almonds. And this is why it's really important to try where we can to consume food in its original matrix, so in its original structure, how it was intended to be consumed. Yeah, I tend to think of it as when it's more processed, a lot of the work has been done for your digestive system. And so it's just all laid bare for their for immediate access. Exactly. I, you know, we often use the term fast or slow food, as in if it hasn't been processed, it's a slow food. If it has already been f- processed, it's speeding its way through. Your body can't handle the speed that it's coming into the blood at and you're all a bit disrupted. <laughs> Since we're talking about nutrients, it's making me think about an interaction I had yesterday. I was serving a snack to my kids and another family, and we had mostly fruit and nuts on the table. 
And the kids were inclined to just choose the fruit. And I have this notion in my head that you should somehow add some fat or some protein with the fruit to make it more balanced. And that somehow that would impact not just getting the nutrients throughout the day, but impact that the way that your body receives and processes that meal. So I'm wondering how grounded that is in science. Spot on. You're giving your children (laughs) the best advice (laughs) and the visiting children. So we know, again, this goes back to what I said about the matrix. It's the structure, but also the nutrients within the food. But that also applies at a meal level. So we know that how you put together your foods modulate how you digest, absorb, metabolize another food. And so a simple example is what you've just said, the nuts and the fruit. So the fruit's got obviously a lot of sugar in it. The nuts have quite a lot of fiber, a lot of fat, and also some protein in it. And what the fat and the protein and the fiber will do is firstly, it will delay the rate at which your stomach empties. So again, it changes the fruit that you're consuming at the same time from being quite a fast food to a slower food because it's reaching the blood at a slower rate. But also the fat stimulates certain hormones that relate to insulin or how quickly you digest carbohydrate as well. So where possible, we should always try and consume mixed nutrient meals. And where possible, we should try throughout the day as well to consume as big a variety of different foods as well. But doing it within a meal, I think is really important. And so trying to make sure within the same meal, you have lots of different types of foods and nutrients. That's great. Okay, so let's rewind a bit to move on to the next bin. At some point, I held you up on the what we eat. and Were you moving on to how we eat? Yeah, so what we eat is really important, as I've just mentioned, and we've had a great discussion around how it's more important to think about the foods, the matrix, and the combinations of foods, as well as just the nutrients. But how we eat is really important. And I think this is one of the really exciting emerging areas of research and the kind of research that's become possible because of the huge scale of the data that we're collecting through our Zoe Predict studies. And by how we eat, we mean the factors around our diet habits. So we mean not just what we're eating, but the time of day that we're eating it, the meal ordering. So what you have for breakfast can actually shape to a certain extent how you respond to your lunch meal. The eating window, so you'll have all heard or most people have heard of time-restricted eating. You know, Are you eating in a small period of time with a longer fasting period? Is your eating window mainly at the beginning of the day and you finish your meals earlier or is it at the end of the day? The time of day that you eat. So for example, we know that most people have a better or more favorable blood sugar response if they consume their carbohydrates in the morning versus the afternoon. Now there's a lot of variability with that and it does change with age, but as a general rule of thumb, you know, snacking, how does frequency of meals, whether we're a traditional three meal a day person or whether we're a grazer where we consume six, seven eating events throughout the day. We know all of this is really important in shaping how we respond to a given food. So it's really complex. And this is why you need huge data, because we need to overlay all of this complexity when we're looking at that apple that you might be having in the morning. We need to be thinking about what time of the day are you having that? How will that affect your next meal? I'm sure this is an impossible question to answer, but What's the magnitude of impact you expect that someone could experience if, for example, they consume the exact same diet over a 16-hour eating window versus a four-hour eating window? So that hasn't been very well studied yet, and that's something that we're mining our data at the moment to look into. 
I think that it's very variable depending on the person. I think it's dependent also on the background diet that they have. And what's really important to mention as well, it depends on the outcome that you're interested in. So what determines how we respond to food is different depending on the outcome. So an example of this is we know that genetics maybe plays about a 50% role in determining our blood sugar response, but we know for our blood fat response, it probably only explains about 5% of the variability. And so if we want to focus on our blood fat response, for example, we know that the microbiome is really important and is one of the key determinants. And yet for our blood sugar response, we know the microbiome is important, but not as important as our blood fat response. So it does depend on the outcome. And I think this is the kind of area around how we in a couple of years' time, hopefully I'll be able to answer with an exact magnitude of effect for you. No, I appreciate you being upfront about what we don't know because I suspect there's a huge amount we still have to learn here. Oh, absolutely. I think because we're only just starting to explore this and because running these kind of studies is challenging, they're expensive, we're asking a lot of the participants, they're very burdensome, and we can only really disentangle the determinants of how people respond to food by collecting a huge amount of data, so collecting data at scale, but also at breadth across all of the different exposures, but also at really high precision and high depth as well. Yeah, like the question I just asked about the difference between a four-hour eating window versus a 16-hour eating window, I mean, how would you even do that experiment? What we do often in research is we look firstly at cross-sectional data. So we would look in our PREDICT program of research where we now have in the magnitude of 20,000 people that we have very detailed data on how people respond to different foods, their eating patterns, a lot of information around the how they eat as well as who they are and what they're eating. And we can look at one point in time. So we can say, okay, those people that are consuming all their foods in a four-hour window versus a 16-hour window, they tend to have a lower BMI or they tend to have lower blood pressure, etc. What we would then want to go on to do is randomized control trials. So they are the intervention studies like you've just mentioned, where we would then randomly allocate one group of people to follow the four-hour eating window, one people to follow the 16-hour eating window, and then follow them over a period of time. And these are all the next steps that we hope to be doing at Zoe, but also there are studies going on looking at these. The problem is there's so many different confounders that you need to consider at the same time. So again, you do need reasonable numbers to do this in a meaningful way. So moving on to the third pillar I think you mentioned was who we are. So can you tell us a bit about genetics and what we've learned? Yep. So by who we are, we mean not just genetics, we also mean our age, our sex. So this is very much the almost non-modifiable factors. And the PREDICT program of research involved in our first study recruitment from the Twins UK cohort. So we had predominantly identical and non-identical twins. So this was a really unique way of actually looking how important is genetics. And interestingly, we found that actually genetics on the whole played actually only a minor role in shaping our responses to food, which I think is really powerful. Certainly, I was a child brought up in the 70s and 80s at this time of explosion of genetic discoveries. And I remember my mum always saying to me, oh, it's all in your genetics. And I think for people that are struggling with their health or their weight, which it's really empowering, I think, to be able to say, actually, it's not all due to your genetics. You're not a prisoner of your genes. That 
what our data shows is that it's not just who you are, but it's largely attributable to modifiable factors. So you really do have the power to change. Now, obviously, there are some people that have a particular genetic phenotypes that mean that they might respond differently to other people, but on a whole, largely how we respond to food is modifiable. We do also know that sex is important. We know that age is important and we know factors that are interrelated to that are important. So we know, for example, menopause is really, really important in shaping how we respond to food and also our health outcomes. And we're about to publish something in the next week where we've done a really deep dive into the menopause. And interestingly, we see big differences between males and females in how they eat, but really importantly, how they respond to food, particularly in their blood sugar responses, in their glycemic responses. We see huge differences as well between premenopausal and postmenopausal women. And if we actually age match, so if we were and we've done this with our research where we've taken a group of people who are of similar age and we've separated out the pre and the postmenopausal women so that we can look at what is due to menopause and what is not just an inevitable part of aging. Again, we see really big differences in lots of health outcomes, in blood pressure, in our adiposity, so our, our weight, in factors such as our sleep, our mood, our dietary intake. But a key thing that we see again is our postprandial blood sugar response, where we see a really unfavorable response in age match postmenopausal women compared to premenopausal women. And I think this isn't due to our genes. And okay, maybe it's inevitable because we're going through the menopause, but actually we know how we can then either modulate or give dietary advice to somewhat attenuate that. So it doesn't mean that, again, you have to be kind of hostage of the menopause, that you can say, okay, these are two changes I can make to reduce, unfortunately, the inevitable part of menopause, but attenuate that. Well, I'm sure you're going to be going there, but any spoiler alerts on the potential role of hormone replacement therapy in that equation? So we did look at HRT and we do find that it has a favorable effect that for, again, age-matched women, we see that those who are on HRT versus those that aren't on HRT, you see a more favorable glycemic response, you see a more favorable health profile generally. And interestingly, again, because we had the twins cohort, we were able to actually separate out identical twins that were on HRT versus those that weren't on HRT. And interestingly, we still see this protective effect of HRT for those that are taking HRT versus those that aren't. That's fascinating. So let's zoom out a bit more from the postprandial response and start bringing it back to the general area of personalized nutrition. So what are some of the big considerations of personalized nutrition that maybe we haven't touched on yet? So I think it's important to reiterate that there's so many different factors that impact how we respond to food and so many different outcomes that we need to think about. And I think it's really important to take that holistic view of our diet and our health. And so really, you'll see the common thread in what I'm saying, that it's not just all about what we eat, but it's about what we eat in the context of, like I've said, who we are and how we eat. And so there's lots of areas that we've been taking a deep dive into in our research and others have looked around time of day or around sleep, for example. And I think it's really important to think of what I often call the four pillars or key pillars of health, which are modifiable pillars as well. So we have diet, 
we have sleep, we have physical activity, and we have stress or, or mood. And so if we look at sleep, for example, we see a really bi-directional impact of sleep on our health and our diet. And so we know that people that are poor sleepers, so if they're short sleepers, we know that the following day, they will have a unfavorable glycemic response to the same meal that if they were to consume on another day and have a good night's sleep, they would have had a favorable response. But we also know that sleep stimulates reward areas in our brain. So it makes us crave quite highly processed, high sugar foods. And so if we overlay that with the fact that short sleepers also have a poorer glycemic response, you can see we have a double whammy of, of effects. So that's why it's really important to consider all of these different integrated variables together. The other factor that we haven't really talked about much is the microbiome. And again, this is another really good example of this bi-directionality. So we know that the diet impacts the microbiome. We know that the microbiome impacts our health response. And from our Zoe Predict studies, we've identified a microbiome signature that we know is related to a healthy diet and uh, favorable health outcomes. And we've identified 15 what we call good bugs. So these are bacterial species that are associated with a healthy diet and very favorable health outcomes ranging from inflammation to blood pressure to postprandial glycemic and lipemic responses. And then we've identified the signature of bad bugs. So these 15 bad bugs that we know are associated with poor diet quality and also unfavorable health outcomes. That's an area I actually worked on in my graduate study. So I'll have to be digging up those studies and, and look into it in more detail. We didn't also touch on physical exercise. And I know that a friend of mine who had gestational diabetes was told that she should go for a walk after she ate. Is that something that applies to people without diabetes? Yep. And again, I think this is something to emphasize to people listening to this is a lot of the advice that are given to people that maybe have a clinical diagnosis is applicable to healthy individuals. And the earlier we can apply the advice, the better it is for our health. So we know that physical activity modulates the metabolism of our blood fats, but also particularly our blood sugar. And so what we've seen from our own studies, and we know from other published research, is that if you exercise immediately after consuming a high carbohydrate meal, you will attenuate that blood sugar rise. So you'll prevent some of the unfavorable effects from that high refined or high carbohydrate meal on not just your blood sugar, but also downstream inflammation and oxidative stress. What we also know is that if you exercise actually before a meal, that you then attenuate your blood fat response. So this postprandial lipemic response, this increase in circulating triglycerides in the blood. So exercise is favorable regardless of the timing on each of those. But actually to have a walk after consuming a high carbohydrate meal is a really effective way of attenuating that glycemic response. That's fascinating. So in your own life, how does your knowledge of all this science inform your diet and lifestyle choices? So how do we, bringing this to the general question of how can people start practicing and implementing this knowledge to make choices for themselves? Well, I'm a great believer that what we eat is very much centered around our emotions, our culture and our social environment. And I think it's really important to have at the forefront of our mind when we're thinking about the food we eat. Do we enjoy it? Does it bring us pleasure? Does it fit in with not just my culture, but my social setting? 
And I think that allows us to make dietary modifications without becoming over fixated on food, which I think is really important. And I think, again, something to bear in mind, which I know I've talked about quite a lot already, and this is something I very much is at the forefront of my mind, is that we need to think about food not in isolation about the nutrients, but we need to think about the food, how we construct a meal, but more importantly, all of these other factors around how we consume the meal, around the time of day. Think about how you feel as well. If you've had a high carbohydrate meal, do you feel really hungry quite quickly? If you do, maybe you're a big dipper and maybe you need to think a bit more about when you're having that high carb meal. So I think it's about listening to your body as well as what you know from kind of textbook, what's the right diet, because we know that the right diet is different for everyone. There's some really simple steps as well, I think, to ensuring that you get a good balance of food. And that's about ensuring that you get a variety of different foods. It's about focusing on the food and not the nutrients. So we would aim for a lot of food that's in its original matrix. So minimally processed foods, a lot of variety of different colors of foods, because the different colors often represent different micronutrients, polyphenols, for example, which we know are really important for our microbiome, for preventing inflammation, having lots of fiber-rich foods and fermented foods as well. So there's a number of companies that have precision nutrition-oriented products of telling you what you should eat based on any parameters. What are your thoughts on the extent to which the science is ready for prime time and your thoughts on how mature is the science? Is it mature enough to start making unique recommendations or are we not there yet? Yeah. So I'm often asked, is precision nutrition or personalized nutrition fact or fiction? And I think we've come hugely in the last couple of years. I've been working on the ZOE studies, which are at the heart of developments in precision nutrition, integrating at scale, the citizen science, AI, and, you know, world-leading nutritional scientists. And out of that, there is a personalized nutrition product developed. There are others on the market. What's key with the one that we've been working on is that we look at all of these different interrelated and integrated exposures and responses. I think as long as we're able to look at that in a product, then I do think it's ready for prime time. There are refinements to make. And I think that something that is also really important to consider is the ultimate goal that we should all have that personalized nutrition can become accessible and implementable for everyone. At the moment, it's something that I think is available because it's at the early stages for a smaller number of people. But the ultimate goal is to generate enough data to understand enough from quite simplistic tests of individuals to be able to give really meaningful personalized advice. So one more thing on the looking forward front, is there any particular question that you're excited that's going to be answered in the near term or what discoveries that are on the horizon are you most excited about? So I think we're still at the relative infancy of being able to show that diet can modulate particular aspects of the microbiome that can then modulate our health. We have some great research from our own studies to show that there's these associations, but I would really want to be able to, in the next few years, show causal effects. And I think that's a really exciting area that we're going to see develop. Another area that I'm particularly excited by is this whole area of how we eat, as I've mentioned, that we have the data now and we're actively looking at it. And over the next six months to a year, I hope to have some really exciting findings of that. 
And the other area I think that we all need to be mindful of is the area around the food matrix. So thinking beyond the nutrients, thinking about food processing, thinking about how we combine meals. And I think they're key areas have a huge impact on how we respond to food and the health impacts of food. Sounds like you've got your work cut out for you for many years to come. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So just to wrap up here, are there any specific websites and resources that you wanted to put in a plug for, for those that want to learn more? Certainly the Zoe, you mentioned several times, but you want to get plug in a few URLs there? Yep. So you can go to the Join Zoe website. So that's joinzoe.com. That has lots of information around all of the exciting science we've been doing, our many publications, links to lots of blogs, podcasts, and it's a real wealth of information for those that want to understand more about personalized nutrition, but more importantly, want practical tips that they can take home and learn from. Excellent. Well, I'll definitely be spending a little more time poking around that website myself. Fabulous. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Barry pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been really exciting to be able to discuss all of the great work that we're doing. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye.